Welcome to Magic Numbers. This is episode number 72, and today we're going to be talking about Lords in Limited. Not Lords of Limited, which is a great podcast, I have to admit, uh, but Lords in Limited, so creatures that pump other creatures of their tribe or other creatures in general. Um, and apart from that, we're also going to talk a bit about how to navigate the data of a weak color without falling into some traps. And also, we're going to be talking about the early look at the March of the Machine. And uh, what are my initial thoughts about the format uh, from what Watsi has shown us? Thank you. Cat Cat is contributing to the podcast by trying to beg for some food. No, not the time. There we go. Oh my God, Scorcha. That doesn't make my uh, work easy, having multiple animals next to me. Please go there. Thank you. Um, but before we move on to this, if the cat will allow me to do that, uh, I would like to thank my sponsor, mtgazon.com. Uh, this week, hopefully, if I finish it tomorrow, I'm going to have a April Fool's episode. And um, uh, I think it's fun. And if you don't agree, then I don't care. So um, uh, check it out. Possibly on Saturday, it will be uh, published. And I'm very interested uh, in your feedback about it. It's not about limited uh, per se. It's more weird, let's call it. But um, yeah, probably it will be worth uh, at least giving it a look. Um, but of course, that's not the only sponsor I have. Uh, I have a good sponsorship from my patrons because I do have a Patreon. Um, and uh, this week, actually, there are two new patrons joining. Uh, Zach Kagan, the famous Zach Kagan, uh, has uh, sponsored me now. And Dane. Uh, these are my two new patrons. Uh, but the spaces are not limited. So if you want to join, please do. Um, all right. So let's move to the first stage of the podcast. And this is the preamble that I have every time. And this week's preamble is finding general trends is much harder than analyzing current format. This is something that I can maybe play my little violin. But uh, generally, I do like uh, analyzing the current set. And it's always interesting. But my main interest in terms of looking at data and magic is looking across multiple formats and trying to find those trends that are universal for them. And the problem with that is that it's very hard to find a good question. It's very hard to filter the data from different formats because they all have their specificities. And sometimes, uh, well, it's not very easy to do that. Um, some, For example, today's topic will be Lords Unlimited. Some formats have five Lords. Some formats have one, some formats have zero. It's very hard to find the trends. Uh, some of the archetypes with lords in them were a, a bit of a miss, and therefore the card was not good. But can you blame the lord um, itself for uh, for the support not being there? And in some uh, in some formats, the lord is absolutely essential for the functioning of the archetype. And in some uh, formats, the support cards are so good that the lord is nice to have, but not necessary. Um, so yeah, and the same goes for uh, things like mana usage, card draw, um, being on the play. All those things will be so spe set specific that it's really hard um, to find those general trends in a meaningful way. Um, 
and this is one of the things that I think is stopping the development of limited and is making the utility of the data slightly less because not many people are trying to look at the general trends for those reasons that I mentioned. I mean, it, it's just generally hard and uh, <laughs> the um, uh, the rewards are pretty small when you do that even, and even if you, uh, if you manage, uh, because obviously people are interested in the current format and uh... my God, what is going on with my cat? He got completely mental. Is he locked out? Oh. So today's podcast is also brought to you by my pets who are uh, currently having an argument between each other. I will have to pause because I have to let that bloody cat out because otherwise he will not hurt at me. Okay, sorry for that, but uh, there was no way other than letting the cat out because he was struggling with the with the cat flap. Um, now I also have a dog that is stuck with his head through the cat flap because he doesn't fit through it, but he wants to see through what's outside. Okay, back to things. So yeah, general trends, this is the thing that uh, this is the way that we should approach data in the next couple of years uh, because the amount of data is there to start looking at them properly. And I think that um, we as a community should spend a bit more time asking ourselves questions and finding good questions that can be answered. And, you know, I know that not everyone can analyze the data or not anyone is feeling comfortable enough to do so, but it's sometimes enough to, you know, pack some of the data people in, in a Twitter uh, post. If you have, you think a good question that can be answered by looking at multiple sets, and who knows, if your idea is good, I might be actually willing to spend some time and try to answer it. So um, if you have any of those questions, definitely tag me and uh, uh, I might do at some stage the AMA episode uh, where I will be exploring data like that. Okay, that goes with the preamble, but that's not all because uh, obviously as I have Patreon right now, uh, one of the perks of the Patreon is being allowed to ask question of the week. Since only one person qualifies for that Patreon level, uh, it's again Mercurio Blue's question, and this week it is how to evaluate commons in weaker colors. Um, this is a sort of an issue because when you look at the data, very often those weak colors will have a lot of poor decks because being a weak color does not necessarily mean that the color is absolutely unplayable, but it means that the builds are not intuitive. And if the builds are not intuitive, a lot of data will also be quite rubbish. Um, and there are several strategies how you can uh, look at the data from those weaker colors and, and how you can get better idea. And not only data, but there are also other tools within 17 Lens Universe that you can utilize apart that are data, sort of data independent, uh, that might give you some good ideas of what needs to be done for a color to be playable. Um, so this graph shows you the win rate of a color by looking at the color per uh, archetypes win rates uh, and then way average um, uh, all of them uh, from these first three days of the second week uh, of uh, Shadows over Innistrad remastered. Um, as you can see, white is by far the best color so, uh, in, in, in this iteration. Um, it has rough, white decks in general have around 56% win rate. Then we have red at 54.5. Then we have green at 53.8. And then we have black and blue at around 53% uh, win rate. Um, and this means that all the white decks, when you add up how many games uh, they played, you know, white, blue, white, red, white, green, and white, black, I have the 55% win rate. Uh, 
and all the blue decks, including blue white and all the other combinations of the color, have around 53% win rate. This means that it looks little, but actually this is quite a big difference. The uh, two and a half percentage points difference between black and white is actually quite large because they also share an archetype. Um, and because of that, uh, and also black shares an archetype with red, which has a relatively high win rate on its own. So because of those sharing with other colors, uh, those differences will never be too big, especially that 17 lens users tend to overdraft color combinations that are actually stronger. So despite black having quite strong archetypes like black red, and despite blue having quite strong archetypes like white blue, they still are quite significantly um, behind um, what white does or what red does in this format. So how to approach looking at the data of the weakest colors? And I decided to pick black as the uh, example for this uh, analysis. Um, First of all, let's look at the individual archetypes. That's I think that's, that's the best place to start. If we look at the black, um, Rakdos is the best black archetype at 54.7. That's still roughly two and a half percentage points lower than Boros, which is the most the highest win rate archetype uh, in the second week so far. Uh, slightly to my surprise, but I think that it gains from a couple of cards being uh, added to the uh, uh, to the to the mix and also it I think gains a lot by people trying to do spider spawning quite a lot and that leaves red and white cards quite open because uh, spider spawning will be predominantly focused in Celestia so uh, you can make those Boros piles that are a slightly more open and b um, they actually deal quite well with those kind of dirty decks if you have a good start but yeah Ragdos is absolutely not bad so first thing that you might look um, when you're trying to find something to do with those weaker colors is to look at where they are actually decent. And Ragdos and Orzov are two uh, archetypes that, you know, they are not tier one by any means, but they at 54.7, 53 uh, win rate, they are not bad. And Golgari maybe also is uh, there and about. Now, Dimir is, is pretty poor at 48.2. That's for 17 lands. That's a really, really, really bad result. Um, Chronic33 is asking, isn't spawning Golgari? Uh, sp spawning itself is, but a lot of support cards are in blue. Uh, so you often will have kind of uh, a mix of green, black, and blue. Sometimes you have like a blue-green deck, maybe splashing uh, uh, black for uh, for the flashback of uh, spider spawning. So uh, these are the colors where, where the synergies that help um, spider spawning are going to be focused. Um, so yeah, th this initial look tells us that probably we should, we should, we should limit ourselves. If you want to get like the base of how, how to make uh, black work, probably we should focus on the Rakdos and then see what's, uh, what's going on in there. Um, so, uh, these are top comments in black in general. It's also a good place to start your search for what would be useful in this color by looking at the top comments. And we have one card that is head and shoulders about the rest, and that's Kisa's Bidding. Um, the four mana uh, sorcery uh, make two, two, two zombies, but it has also a madness cost of two and a black. So for three mana, you can cast it if you can discard it somehow. And three mana uh, instant speed, two, two, two bodies is quite strong card. Therefore, it has the highest win rate. Uh, second place is by quite a large margin, almost two percentage points difference, is Olivia's Dragoon. 
and that's a um, two-two, and it has an ability discard a card. It gains flying until end of turn. It's a prime way of enabling madness, and that shows you that. And it's also a vampire, which screams, um, uh, which screams Rakdos. And probably that's why the win rate is high because it's predominantly played in the best uh, archetype of the color pair. And still, the win rate is not impressive at 54.5. Then we have a third place, uh, Crow of Dark Tidings. And this is probably a card that's um, a bit underrated in the format. Uh, It's a three mana, two, one flyer. Uh, When it ETBs or dies, it mills two. then we have uh, Deadweight, but that's already like 53.6. Uh, that's an enchantment aura that gives target creature minus two, minus two. Great if you want to uh, enable uh, Delirium, because it, if it successfully kills something, it uh, puts an enchantment in your graveyard, therefore increasing the types by one that is hard to get. Um, but again, that's already, that's already 53.6. And then we have a bunch of things at 52, 51%. So looking at this data, I see that black doesn't seem impressive at the common level, and that's probably a big problem of it. It has one card, uh, then maybe two, three decent ones, and the rest is very, very replaceable, uh, which is a problem. Uh, If the cards lack an individual power, then there is also a potential that they will have synergies. And to look for synergies, you probably should go into a more granular data set because you won't see synergies if you look across all the four archetypes. And luckily, in uh, 17 lands, you can look through um, the win rate data of uh, each color, each um, rarity, also through the lens of a particular archetype. And here I looked at the uh, win rate data of the commons in white black in Orzov because Orzov is sort of not far behind um, Rakdos, but it's probably much less understood uh, on how to build it. And uh, because it's less understood, maybe the data can shed the light on what it wants to be doing. And um, and yeah, the top uh, winning common in, in, in White Black is uh, Weirded Vampire, but I have to put a big asterisk on that card uh, because it has a very small sample size. So I think that um, it's played in maybe some of the uh, white black decks that actually have good ways of enabling uh, madness. Uh, And it's a very small subset of those decks uh, that is potentially, it won't potentially fit in every deck. So when I look through the data, I don't only look at the win percentage, I look through all the data points that I can to get as much information out of those points as uh, as I physically have. Uh, and in case of Weirded Vampire, I can see, yes, it's probably very good uh, in these decks that also have multiple Olivia's Dragoons, which are actually not great in this um, archetype uh, in general. But if you have already a bunch of Kisses Biddings and uh, Weirded Vampires, you can, and you added, supplement those with uh, some good white cards, because white is the best color in the set, uh, then you will probably uh, uh, increase the power of the Weirded Vampire. Second place, quite surprisingly to me, at 56.4, was uh, the Crowd of Dark t- Tidings. Um, and then third place is Certain Death, the six mana removal that drains for one. Um, so these are the top three cards. And then Sanitarium Skeleton is on in fourth place, but basically uh, ex with uh, Certain Death at 55.9. Uh, Sanitarium Skeleton is the skeleton that you can return to your hand from the graveyard. And then I see another couple of cards that uh, get better with um, with um, 
graveyard being filled in. The uh, Thraben Foulbloods, uh, it's a card that with Delirium becomes a 4-3 Manus. Uh, Ghoulcaller's Accomplice, it's a card that you can exile from your graveyard to make a zombie. Um, so this combined with the fact that you do well with the Crow, Crow of Dark, Dark Tidings, um, and combined with the fact that I look through the data and I do know that some of the white cards that also can be exiled from the graveyard um, to make spirit tokens are also quite high in it. This tells me that together with Sanitarium Skeleton, um, together with Sanitarium Skeleton, uh, those will maybe make sort of a backbone of a deck that uh, wants to use self-mill for value, uh, generate creatures out of the things that you milled, um, while uh, enabling Delirium and, um, and getting benefits from Delirium. So this is one way of looking through it. Look through the win rates of individual commons um, of a particular archetype in that color, and then maybe you can get a slightly better uh, uh, view of, of, of how the cards look like. But that's not always going to work. I mean, I, for example, looked through the win rate of the commons in blue-black, and I looked and I looked and I saw absolutely nothing in there. It was just very chaotic. And I think that this has a lot to do with the fact that people don't know how to build the blue-black decks, because if they knew, then the win rate of the archetype wouldn't be uh, 48%, but it is. So how can you look through um, um, uh, those archetypes that are hard to judge? Well, first of all, we don't know if they can work at all. Maybe they are just too bad to work and you can't find a good version of it. But Occasionally, people do trophy with blue-black. I'm saying occasionally, because it won't happen very often. And we looked at the data of color perform performance earlier. We looked at the data of card performance. Um, and I think that in case of those, um, of those um, archetypes that are hard to grasp, the best way of uh, figuring out what makes them tick except for doing all the archetypes thing and um, uh, spending uh, four days in getting the data out of that, uh, because nobody has time for that kind of stuff, you can look through the recent trophy decks and 17 lands. And that's a pretty useful feature. Uh, what I usually do is I try to look at the recent decks of a color combination that I'm interested in that trophied. And also, if I can afford to do that, I prefer to look at the ones that were in you know, diamond plus platinum diamond mythic, so that I can filter through um, uh, people that know what they're doing, but also more importantly, who had a higher level of potential competition, because of course, ranking up can be hard and not everyone will go to diamond. Therefore, if you're in diamond, then at least you did something right. Um, so that's exactly what I did when looking at the blue black. And for example, I found this build, build here, uh, it's based on uh, two copies of Rise from the Tides, uh, has a bunch of Gisses biddings, um, has a bunch of spells, very few creatures actually when you look through that, uh, if any even. Uh, there's the Homunculus, uh, there's the Scarecrow, uh, but apart from that, it's it's all spells. And, and the plan is to survive in the game long enough to cast Rise from the Tides for nine or something like that. And when you do that, um, you can take over the game rather rapidly because you have a lot of interaction, so you can push those zombies through for lethal. Um, and this deck trophy, so um, important to know that it's possible, but it absolutely doesn't do what um, what the archetype is sort of supposed to do. So it doesn't um, 
Uh, it doesn't have any zombie synergies, although it does have a lot of potential of generating zombies. Um, and I saw another deck that was slightly different. I don't think I put a copy of it. But you can go through those uh, trophy lists and try to figure out, okay, what was the person drafting that deck on, and playing that deck? What was their plan? And uh, uh, how did they make it happen? Right. Hopefully that answers the question of the week. Um, so let's move on to the main topic, which will be sort of main topic minus whatever. Uh, and today we're going to be talking about Lords and Limited. Um, tribal is a common theme in Limited. And I think Tribal is a theme that Watsi has done so frequently that it usually hits. It means usually when you have a Tribal deck in a format, it's going to be decent. Ironically, I put Inspiring Veteran here in the, in the Tribal that actually missed in front of Little Drain because the Knights were not that strong. Um, but they, they, they had their moments. If you, if you got a good Knight deck, it was actually quite strong. Um, but especially when Lords are present, those, those uh, archetypes are usually quite strong. And in the first week of Sir, we had four Lords present in the format at uncommon level. Um, but all the Lords uh, are gone from the Shadows of the Past slot this week. So this is a perfect moment to try to evaluate what is the impact of the Lords on the, uh, on the format in general. Um, so I collected a bunch of uh, Lords from the previous sets and I looked at some of the data uh, related to them. And here we have the color pen win rate, per win rate of the, of the colors that the Lord was in. And I picked several Lords. There is Maya Bretagard Protector that was the five mana two two um, that gives all your other creatures plus one plus one. And also when you, um, um, when you play a land, you get a one one soldier token. And that card was in, um, that card was, um, well, basically in very strong archetypes because this number shows you, right, not the win rate of the card, but the win rate of the color pair that the card was in, in the whole format. And you can see that uh, generally uh, Lords were in uh, archetypes that have um, high win rate. Now, question obviously is, is this win rate high because the Lords are in the for uh, archetype or is the archetype strong because tribal synergies are generally strong and Lord helps or not, but um, uh, but uh, but it doesn't necessarily have an impact on, on on the win rate. But you can see we have the Silver Fur Master, that's the uh, ninja ninja and rogue lord from uh, Kamigawa Neon Dynasty, fifty eight point six percent the win rate of the archetype. When you go back to the win rates in um, in um, Shadows of Innistrad, the best archetype Boros right now has fifty seven point two. The second best Selesnya has fifty six point one. So 58% uh, uh, win rate is unreachable by um, any of the archetypes. In fact, the archetypes where top five of the lords uh, on my list were played are actually stronger than the uh, top archetype in, in this current format so far. So we have uh, Maya 58.7, Silverfur Master 58.6, uh, Blade Stitched Scab from Midnight Hunt, the 2-3 zombie lord that gave them plus one plus oh, uh, is 58.2. Yoshin Tactician, uh, the uh, Soldier Lord from Bro, uh, the 3-4 that gave Soldiers plus 1 plus 1, 58%. Darling of the Masses, the green-white um, the green white card from Streets of New Capena that gave Citizens plus 1 plus 0, uh, 57.4. And, you know, even if you go a bit lower, Droxkull Captain, 57, uh, Kargan War Leader, uh, the Warrior uh, Tribal uh, Lord from Zendikar Rising, 
57 as well. And then we have like Stromkirk, Stromkirk captain from uh, from Sarah from the first week, 56.7. Um, and then we have slightly lower, like Slaughter Singer uh, from one, Immerwolf from uh, Sir, and Soaring Thought Thief, uh, 55.1. These are more or less like tier two or three of the of the lords, and then dead last by uh, by quite uh, quite a number is the diagraph uh, captain the zombie lord from Sir. Um, Blue black had forty seven percent win rate in uh, in that first week when the lord was present in the format. So clearly, uh, in this one particular case, tribal synergies were just not good, and it might be you know. If 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 I were uh, a design team, I would spend quite a lot of time looking at the blue black zombie theme in um, in Shadows over Innistrad and and try to figure out why that one didn't work. If we have such an amazing record of um, of getting the tribal synergies together, and I'm sure that they do that also. So you know, it's not that I tell them, oh guys, I'm I'm sure that you don't do it. I'm sure that they do it. It's just that. This is the data point that clearly can show that the, how uh, how 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 can you make uh, tribal synergy not work? Um, okay, so let's look at the impact of the Lord on the deck. And um, here I looked at the win rate of the games of the decks that had the Lord. And as you can see, it's a mixed bag actually. Maya, for example, the uh, that was in the strongest deck uh, on its own. Maya actually had a 2.7 percentage points lower win rate um, in the decks that Maya was present than in the general decks, which means that the decks with Maya were significantly weaker than uh, the decks uh, without. And I think that has something to do that uh, the best decks in uh, white green were super ultra aggressive with a bunch of one drops and the five mana Maya was not always uh, on the plan. There were possibly some decks where Maya was absolutely amazing, but these were more like towards mid-range, because one problem that Maya had was that it costs five mana to cast, and that's way more than most of the lords in the uh, in this uh, classification. Um, but uh, for example, like uh, Silver Fair Master, Blade Stitch Scab, Yoshin Tactician, all those cards had an almost zero impact on the deck. It means that the win rate of the decks with or without them in those color pairs was roughly identical. Uh, Darling of the Masses, also four mana card, uh, uh, important to know. Um, this one uh, is weaker by 0.7 percentage points, which is, you know, maybe maybe relevant, maybe not relevant. Um, it's definitely uh, showing that it did not have like a massive improvement effect on the um, on uh, on the archetype. But then we go to cards like uh, to colors like. Uh, Blue-white in, in Shadows of Innistrad, where having Drogskull Captain in that deck was increasing your win rate by 1.4 percentage points, which is, I would say, substantial. Because you have to think, if you're playing blue-white, very often Drogskull Captain is the card that drags, draws you towards playing it. Uh, and since this is the card that draws you into playing it, quite a, lot, uh, quite a large fraction of the decks uh, in that archetype will have Drogskull Captain. And it shows you that that means that the ones that don't have it, and I fortunately don't have that data to analyze it, uh, more stringently, but those decks that don't have it, I'm pretty sure have a much, much lower win rate than the average because they are probably a minority of the decks that don't have Drogskull Captain rather than um, uh, rather than majority. And we see the similar uh, things with 
Hargan uh, War Leader, that's 0.8 percentage points higher win rate um, when you have it in the deck than if you don't have it in the red-white in uh, Zendikar Rising. Uh, and Stronker Captain, uh, this one 1.7 percentage points um, higher win rate if you had it uh, than if you didn't have. Uh, which again, to me, shows that uh, Vampire decks uh, might be in deep trouble uh, in week two. And it's going to be interesting to see after everything finished and maybe get a sample size out of that and see uh, see what happens. Um, then we have S Slaughter Singer. That one had an 0.7 percentage point um, uh, lowering effect. Uh, Slaughter Singer is a bit of a strange lord because it doesn't give um, it doesn't have it doesn't give like um, um, a permanent effect. It only gives plus one plus one to the attacking toxic creatures rather than to doing it uh, all the time. Um, and two other ones, Immer Wolf and Soaring Thought Thief, um, 0.9 and 1.2 percentage points increase um, uh, overall. So in general, uh, oh yeah, we, we left out the Diagraph Captain. The win rate was already poor uh, and Diagraph Captain inclusion to the deck did not change it by much. Uh, those decks were still uh, winning the same 57, uh, 48% of the games. So uh, barely any difference by having Diagraph Captain or not which just shows you that not only the deck was not synergistic uh, and not strong, but also the Lord was not uh, not, not strong enough, uh, to put it bluntly. Um, and I don't know, maybe it is uh, something to do that uh, blue-black in Shadows of Innistrad, because you have to keep in mind that Diagraph Captain is not a card from Shadows over Innistrad, but Diagraph Captain uh, uh, in Shadows over Innistrad was just not good enough card to... Um, uh, to play with the synergies of the format because the format was not about being aggro zombies the format was a bit maybe kind of uh, attritiony play around zombies and and because of that diagraph captain was a miss but generally you see that the stronger the archetype is on its own the slightly lower the impact the lord has because if the cards are strong already then lord is uh, an overkill and maybe you want to invest in some other cards uh, so you don't have to go out of the way to pick those uh, Lord creatures uh, uh, in, in decks when you know that the archetype is already strong. But if the archetype is sort of mid-strength, then going full tribal might be a difference between a, a, a decent deck and a great deck. Uh, okay. So uh, another number, another bunch of numbers that I wanted to look is the impact of how many of the tribal cards you have in your deck. And I honestly didn't find it in my heart to analyze every single one of them, especially that I don't have the data from Shadows over Innistrad. Uh, so instead of that, I focused on one card, um, and namely Yoshin Soldier from, uh, from Brothers War, um, and basically trying to show you how does the win rate change uh, depending on the number of soldiers in that deck. Uh, and that's the number of soldiers minus Yoshin Soldier. I didn't count itself. But I counted other Yoshin soldiers if there were in the deck. So uh, if you had like four or less soldiers apart from your Yoshin soldier, the win rate was around 52%. And it slowly grows. I mean, at five, it's weirdly 56. But it, these numbers are based on small enough sample size that maybe, um, maybe there is variance uh, involved in that. But uh, those win rates slowly, slowly climb 53.8 at six soldiers, 55.3 at eight soldiers, 56.5 at 10 soldiers. And then 
you cross this magic number of 12 and you get uh, win rates in 60% uh, range. So, oh, Yoshin says, yes, it is Yoshin Tactician. Thank you very much, Mercurio. Uh, I'm, of course, mean Yoshin Tactician, very much like I meant in the previous slide where it did say Yoshin Tactician. I somehow wrote Yoshin Soldier in the uh, slide description. Uh, but over 12 soldiers, you reach 61% win rate, and you know, 13, 14, 15 soldiers, it's around the mark of 61, 60% uh, win rates. And that's, that's really good. That means that the decks are very strong. So you have to keep in mind that um, lords will, and I know it's an intuitive thing, but it's always good to measure those intuitive things because who knows, maybe they are not as intuitive as we think. But here it's quite clear that uh, increasing the number of soldiers um, is uh, going to improve your chances of winning. And I also, it will be interesting to get a format when you have multiple lords to try to compare how important they are based on the cost of the lord and, and, and other, other effects that are present. But um, in general, it looks like uh, having 12 soldiers or 12 members of the tribe on top of the lord is the sort of important number when there's like this jump shift. Um, and I think that here in this uh, 10 to 10 to 13 range, sample sizes were big enough that you can more or less trust those numbers. Um, okay, so that's the ocean soldier. Um, then I looked a bit at um, the win rates of tribal decks uh, from Shadows over Innistrad Remastered uh, over the first week and over the second week. And Generally, Azorius, Ragdos, and Gruul, three uh, color combinations that were good and had the Lord, they basically lost uh, win rate um, across the uh, um, between the first and the second week. So Azorius had 57, now it has 55.9. Uh, Ragdos had 56.7, now it's 55.3% win rate. Gruul, 55.7 to 54.7. So roughly like one, one and a bit percentage points drop in the win rate. Demir weirdly increased the win rate from 4.7 to 40 from 47 to 48.8%, uh, which to me means that not going for those zombie synergies is probably a good idea when you're playing blue black. And if you saw just a couple of minutes ago, the trophy deck that I showed you didn't have any zombie or zombie synergies uh, except for one card that makes a bunch of zombies and doesn't care about. Zombie synergy, but cares about spell synergies and especially spells in the graveyard synergies. So maybe because Lord was taken away, more people are trying to build uh, Demir as a sort of maybe semi-combo attrition control. Um, and that's why maybe the win rate went slightly up. I mean, it's still bad, don't get me wrong, but, uh, but it's slightly better in the second week. It's also, we have to keep in mind that we're not only comparing uh, the colors that lost the Lord, but also these scholars uh, gained some other cards that maybe partially at least compensate uh, for um, for not having the Lord. Like for example, in my head at least, uh, the blue-white spirits gained the card that can uh, tap to uh, two creatures and has a flashback that also can tap to creatures. I think this card is uh, pretty strong in tempo strategy because it allows you to win the races very much like the Lord did. But the Lord did it by accelerating your clock while the uh, current card can, um, I forgot its name, obviously, um, but it can slow the clock of the opponent down enough so that your clock uh, doesn't need to be faster, it just needs to be there. 
Um, so there is some kind of a trade-off uh, between what was removed and what was put back. Um, so yeah, um, these are the lords, and I did not make a slide about it, but I think that a pretty interesting um, card on that list was um, uh, the Soaring Thought Thief. Like First of all, Soaring Thought Thief was in a deck that was actually relatively poor unless you had the Soaring Thought Thief. I think that um, if you played the blue-black deck and you had a Soaring Thought Thief uh, in your hand, um, you had something like percent, 14 percentage points higher win rate uh, than if you didn't draw it. So the card was absolutely essential because not only it was the Lord, but it was also a key enabler of the main mechanic of the uh, blue-black decks, which was uh, having opponents having uh, seven or more cards in their graveyard. So Soaring Thought Thief uh, enabled both those strategies, and because of that, uh, it pumped all your creatures if the conditions were met, and um, it allowed you to uh, make sure that you will be able to fulfill that condition of seven cards in the graveyard by helping to mill your opponent. And because of that, the card was so amazing. And even though when you look at the color pen win rate, uh, Soaring Thought Thief is dead last in terms of the um, uh, color win rate, except for this, you know, blue-black insert that I just refuse to treat like a tribal deck because probably shouldn't play it as a tribal. Um, but because of that Soaring Thought Thief, even though uh, the decks with it were not strong, once you drew it, once you maybe had a couple of those, uh, your deck became insanely good all of a sudden because that's how important this, this particular lord was. While the other ones, they do have some effect and they do um, improve with the number of um, creatures in the tribe, as I showed on the example of the Ocean Tactician, but they are not absolutely essential and very often they will not do much to improve the win rate of your deck. And I think that in any format where tribal is an important uh, synergy part, um, it's, it's worth looking at those numbers and at those stats. And I already know that in uh, March of the Machine, we are going to have I don't know if at Uncommon, but at least at Rare, we're going to have some Lords. There is already a spoiler of a Phyrexian Lord. Um, so that's going to be interested, interesting how that one works. Uh, obviously, it's a Rare, so it's slightly higher power level, but uh, this is a Lord that you can recur every turn. Therefore, if you are playing a heavy uh, Phyrexia um, theme, you might want to do anything in your power to get make sure that you get access to that card either by self-milling yourself or by by digging through it or by tutoring for it and stuff like that. So uh, it's going to be interesting to look through that. Um, okay, and that's basically it in terms of um, in terms of Lords Unlimited so far. I will be happy to answer some questions after this seminar if you have any ideas about uh, how to analyze the Lords better. Um, and with that, I will move a bit to the overview of the March of the Machine. And as I mentioned in the beginning of the uh, podcast, try to maybe do some reverse engineering into the heads of uh, Dave Humphreys and co, uh, who were, well, Dave Humphrey was uh, leading um, uh, leading the design of the set. So we're going to try to figure out what were they thinking and, and how can we use that to our advantage in the first days. But always keep in mind, we are making these speculations based on reverse engineering of the psychology of the design team and not very much on cards because we know a bunch of rares and, and, and you know, limited, um, limited formats are built on um, uh, commons and we don't have access to too many of them. But just by looking at the mechanics and, and, and how the set is building up, maybe we can figure out something. 
And there are for now four main mechanics, battle, backup, incubate, and convoke. What's he claims that transforming cards is a mechanic? I don't know, sort of possibly, but there are some transforming cards. So um, uh, that's technically a mechanism, but uh, I'm just counting it as a, as a kicker. And uh, unless there are cards that are going to be triggered by something transforming, which maybe there are a couple, um, I don't think that much will be happening. So yeah, battle, I said. And there's already a question in the chat. Is that a new type of card? Yes, it is a new type of card, completely new type of card. So just to explain to you what, what is happening, we have Invasion of Dominaria. That's a three mana uh, spell, two and a white. Battle, Siege. And you play it on your turn as a permanent, so it has the sorcery speed kind of casting cost. And as it enters the battlefield, you choose an opponent. So in limited, it doesn't matter. You, 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 there is only one to choose from. And that opponent has to protect uh, that card. Um, what does it mean that it protects? It comes in with a number of counters. And they are like Planeswalker counters. So they start at five. And you basically have to attack those counters or, or, or remove them or, or burn them out. Uh, you can do that in, in, in many times. And once you get those counters to zero, the card flips and it becomes something else. But first, before that happens, it does always have uh, an ETB effect. So this one has when Invasion of Dominaria enters the battlefield, you gain four life and you draw a card. So basically you play a three mana spell that uh, draws a card and gains you four life. And then it, there is uh, five life tokens on it or whatever you call it. Um, and if you attack it and, and remove all those counters, uh, Invasion of Dominaria flips and it becomes Sarah Faithkeeper and that's a 4-4 Flying Vigilance Angel. Um, so how to evaluate those cards is going to be... Um, it's going to be pretty tough because 3 mana for gaining 4 life and drawing a card is not that amazing. I mean, it's something. For 2 mana, it would be great or proper. But for 3 mana, it's maybe a bit overpriced. But you pay this 3 mana not only for the uh, gaining 4 life and drawing a card, but also for a promise of getting that 4-4 uh, Flying Vigilance Angel, which is obviously worth like 5 mana or 4 mana if it was a rare. So you get a bargain. If you manage to flip it, you get a bargain. But obviously to flip it, you also have to deal 5 damage to it. In the simplest scenario, you play it, opponent is tapped out, and you have 5 power on board and just attack it and you get the Angel. But that, of course, means that opponent gained five life. So possibly you can read this card, three mana, draw a card, gain four life. And if opponent gains five life, you gain a four for the flying vigilance uh, angel. I think that it's still a great rate for that kind of effect. It's just, of course, the uh, building of the angel might take some time. Uh, but that opens a lot of questions. We, we're going to talk about, in, about it uh, in a second, but that five number in here makes me think the design set surely knows that this is a lot five this is like a quarter of your starting life that you need to deal damage to some kind of an um, artifact just to get that flying vigilance angel so what's the, what's the what's the what, what 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 is the point if you can go face to that uh, player and 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 kill them um rather than um rather than kill the battle so in my head the design team is not dumb and they know that, that that's the case. Therefore, the format is built in a way that it will be beneficial for you to attack the, the battle anyway and not to attack the life. Uh, and we're going to talk about it in a second. But let's look at the second mechanic. 
and that's backup. Uh, um, backup is uh, it has a number always. So uh, for example, Boonbringer Valkyrie is a five mana angel warrior four four three at white white in, in casting cost and has backup one. And backup one means that when this creature enters the battlefield, um, put a plus one plus one counter on target creature. If that's another creature, another meaning not the Boonbringer Valkyrie. Uh, that another creature gains the following abilities until end of turn. And then there are the abilities of the Boonbringer Valkyrie, which is Flying, First Strike, and Lifelink. So basically, 5 mana, 4-4 four, four with Flying, First Strike, Lifelink. As it ETBs, you can give Flying, First Strike, and Lifelink to any of your creatures that are on board already, and it also gets a plus one, plus one counter. So let's say you have a three, like some kind of a 3 mana, 3-3 three, three on the board. Uh, it's a board stall. Uh, you play the Boonbringer Valkyrie, you send the 3-3 into the air, it has flying, first strike, and lifelink, so it attacks. It becomes a 4-4 as well, so you basically um, deal 4 damage, uh, gain 4 life, uh, and you still have this 4-4 flying, first strike, lifelink, angel uh, on board. And card looks insanely powerful if there's, uh, not, not, not the, if, if, if there's not so much removal. Um, Connor666111 asks, does it give activated abilities? Uh, yes. So look at the second card. That's uh, Voldaren Thrillseeker. That's a three mana vampire warrior, uh, a one one, and it has backup two. So when this creature enters the battlefield, put two plus one plus one counters on target creature. If it's another creature, it gains the following ability until end of turn. One mana sacrifice that creature. It deals damage equal to its power to any target. So, uh, so for example. If you have the uh, Yargle and Multani, which is a something like, what is it, six, seven mana, uh, 18, six, you can play Voldar and Thrill Seeker, put two plus one plus one counters on uh, Yargle and Multani and, and send it for 20 into the face for one additional mana. Uh, so yeah, you, you, you get a poten potential combo kill in this format like that. But uh, you, I can imagine um, other uses of that. For example, you play the Voldaren Thrill Seeker, uh, you have a 2-2 on board, uh, and you have a battle that opponent is defending from you that has four counters on it. You give the two counters on the 2-2, sacrifice it, kill the battle, and you gain the um, reward of the battle, which is usually a big reward. So maybe it's worth actually to sacrifice that um, um, uh, to sacrifice that creature. And you're still left with the Voldaren Thrill Seeker, uh, which is still a 1-1. One -one. Um, now, importantly, if you don't have another creature, you can always put the um, um, backup counters on itself. They won't get the second instance of those abilities. Uh, so uh, um, uh, let's say Boonbringer Valkyrie will not get flying first strike and lifelink for the second time, which is not important in case of those um, abilities, but, um, but maybe some other abilities might be, might be relevant. For example, Archpriest of Shadows, the next one, uh, it's a five mana four four. It has a backup one, um, and the abilities it has is death touch. And the second ability is whenever this creature deals combat damage to a player or battle, return target creature card from your graveyard to the battlefield. So, for example, you have a one one flyer somewhere there. You play Archpriest of Shadows. You give the one one flyer plus one plus one counter, and then it attacks, and then it basically reanimates anything from your graveyard. Um, whenever it deals damage to the battle or um, or creature. Not Planeswalker, by the way. Um, 
So yeah, Arch Priest of Shadows, if you have the rightly tuned deck, can be also like a, a house, basically, because 4-4 um, Death Touch is a good body. Uh, it making something evasive bigger and, and, and letting you reanimate something is, is a very big swing of uh, in the game. Uh, so probably worth building around that kind of card. And Backup is another scary ability. So already during the battles, I told you... Uh, if you play a battle and opponent is tapped out, you can flip the battle quite easily. Uh, so, which leads me to the idea because battle is one battle is going to be in every single pack. So there's going to be plenty of battles lying around. This is not going to be a format where you're going to be happy uh, attacking with for all unless you kill the opponent. Uh, this is the format where you want to leave some defenders back uh, because if you don't, you might start the turn in a big advantage and end the turn uh, being way behind. Um, and backup is similar because if you tap out and you think that, ah, oh, you know, I'm good. I mean, they have like a 1-1 one, one and I'm just slamming. And all of a sudden they play Archpriest of Shadows. That 1-1 one, one becomes a 2-2 two, two and reanimates something. You will feel quite foolish that uh, you didn't leave something to block. Uh, okay. Why didn't I change the name of the slides? Let's go. There, my famous uh, scrutiny uh, does not apply to making slides, it, it seems. Okay, let's go back. Incubate is the next mechanic. And Incubate is not as aggressive as the first two, but it's also interesting. So Incubate is um, an ability where by you create a, a token when it enters the battlefield, the card, or when the spell is cast. And uh, that token will get plus one, plus one counters, but it's they're pretty useless because the token is an incubator artifact and it doesn't it's not a creature. However, you can pay two mana and you can flip this incubator token. I don't know how it works. The token has a backside, but okay. Uh, they, they say that it's according to the rules, so I, I must assume it is. And then, of course, it becomes a zero, zero. And because it's zero, zero with plus one, plus one counter, it has the same power and toughness as the... Um, a number of incubate that it was cast for. So for example, we have a card, Norn's Inquisitor, and that's a two mana, one, one, uh, but when it enters the battlefield, incubate two. So you create this incubator token with two plus one plus one counters. Um, and also when a permanent you control transforms into a Phyrexian, put a plus one plus one counter on it. Uh, which means that if you uh, pay for the incubate token to uh, transform, it transforms into Phyrexian. So let's say you play this on turn two. It's a 1-1. One, one. You make this uh, incubator artifact. Next turn, you pay two other two mana, and you flip the um, uh, incubator token. And also, Norn's Inquisitor gets plus one, plus one counter, because um, uh, because it does it uh, every time you transform something into a Phyrexian. So it's like a two mana that for another two mana uh, becomes two bodies that are two twos with Norn's Inquisitor potentially growing further uh, if you have other uh, incubate things. And it's not only on creatures, uh, so the other card is Merciless Repurposing, and that is a six mana instant uh, for black black, and it just says exile target creature incubate three. So it kills something, exiles something, and um, then you get a three, um, three, three incubator, uh, that you can flip into a 3-3 creature for 2 mana later. So in for a majestic total of 8 mana split, maybe over 2 turns, possibly, uh, you exile a creature and you get a 3-3, which 
is expensive, but um, the 3 3 is not nothing. And removal is going to be, I think, important in this format because mm, there is some pretty busted uh, bombs, uh, it seems to me. Um, uh, Chronic says that uh, Norn makes a 3 3 actually, if still in play. Why a 3 3? Sorry, because I didn't understand. Oh, whenever a permanent you control. Ah, oh, yeah, yeah, sorry, sorry, sorry. Yeah, yeah. Norn doesn't grow, it's the, uh, it's the Phyrexian uh, that grows. Yeah, yeah. So Norn will stay 1 1. It's the uh, incubated Phyrexian that becomes a 3 3. It's still 4 4 power sets over two bodies, but uh, differently uh, arranged. Um, okay. So these are how those incubator uh, token looks like. On one side, you got this incubator, transform this artifact. And on the flip side, you have a 0 0 artifact creature, Phyrexian, um, with as many plus one plus one counters as uh, the incubator was when it was cast. Um, also, yeah, worth noting, these are artifacts. So artifact removal might be actually playable in the set uh, because multiple decks might have those incubator tokens somewhere around. And it will be now always nice to nab it if there is a spell that has some other utility. Um, next ability is Convoke. But this time it's weird because uh, normally we're used to Convoke being in white green. And this time Convoke is in actually in, in, in blue-red, which is interesting. Uh, so here we have Interdisciplinary Mascot. That's a six blue-blue uh, elemental fractal. It's a 5-5 five, five, uh, with Ward 3, and it has Convoke. And when it ETBs, uh, you look at the top four cards of your library, put one of them into your hand, and the rest on the bottom of your library in a random order. So basically, it, it's a 5-5 five, five, Ward 3 with an Impulse. Now, Impulse costs two mana normally, so uh, deduct those two mana from the cost of it, and it becomes a uh, six mana, five, five ward. Uh, so six mana, five, five ward in blue is not terrible, but probably you want to play pay five for that kind of an effect. So if you can tap one creature, you do pay five for that effect. If you tap two creatures, you pay four for that effect. Now, everything now depends whether you can afford to pay it or not. And uh, that's going to be make, making or breaking those uh, Convoke spells. I'm, I'm pretty sure that you have to be really in front to be able to Convoke things that are sorcery speed, like Interdisciplinary Mascot. Because tapping two creatures means that you're being a bit more open to being uh, slammed. Luckily, the 5-5 five, five Ward 3 might be just enough to break the opponent. So I think that the size of the interdisciplinary mascot is uh, is on its uh, is, is acting in its favor. But uh, still, I mean, this might be a card that um, you will have to wait for a long time to play because even if you convoke it for with two creatures, um, you still need to pay six for it. Um, but convoke is not only on uh, permanent spells in this format. Uh, here you have stoke the flames. That's two red red for an instant. And it has Convoke, uh, and it says Stoke the Flames deals four damage to any target. Now, A, you can cast it at the end of the uh, turn, where tapping your creature does not cost you that much, because you won't be needing to block with them anymore, whatever. Which means that quite a lot of the time, Stoke the Flames will be a free spell. And free spell that deals four damage to any target is great, and uh, also deals for damage to any target means that it can target the battles. Uh, and so basically you can just play your creatures, 
tap out completely, stall the board, opponent doesn't attack, end of turn, you tap four of your creatures if you have two of them are red, and for zero mana, you basically uh, uh, kill a battle, transform it, and you get another creature, potentially a really good one. So um, Stoke the Flames looks absolutely phenomenal to me because Convoke and Instant uh, is a great combination. It basically turns everything that you have into a mana uh, dork. Um, and also, uh, uh, they can be a mana dork even uh, with haste. Exactly. You can also block and Convoke during the combat uh, when opponent is not uh, expecting something and blow out their combat tricks. I mean, this card just looks so good. It isn't uncommon, but I mean, it looks so good. And I think that there are a couple of cards in this format that uh, will help the um, blue-red Convoke. Uh, there are some blue spells that generate some kind of tokens, uh, one-ones of relevant colors. So uh, maybe maybe, maybe you will be able to build a wide enough board to, uh, to Convoke uh, quite uh, efficiently. And get those interdisciplinary mascots for 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 cheapsies. So this is the part that I was already sort of talking about, uh, trying to reverse engineer what is the uh, design team thinking about when um, when they were designing the set. And I'm looking at this card, Invasion of New Pyrexia, for a very specific reason. Um, not only because it has Teferi that is actually aggressive, which is seeing this Teferi was one of the better moments in my life uh, because. All those Teferi players that want to play those miserable games without win cons now have to deal with the fact that Teferi is an aggressive planeswalker that pumps creatures and doesn't do anything if you don't have creatures, which is great. But Invasion of New Phyrexia is an X blue white uh, for a battle. And uh, it has when Invasion of New Phyrexia enters the battlefield, create X 2 2 white and blue knight creature tokens with vigilance. And it has six defense, uh, whatever the toughness is called. Um, so if I make like five two twos, I think that you know my first instinct would be to go face and just kill the opponent uh, because that's what multiple two two tokens do best. So clearly the design team doesn't want you to do that because they would rather make this new mechanic, the new type of the card. You know, we don't get new types of cards in Magic um, every week. Uh, we get new cards every week, but not new types of cards. Uh, otherwise, Tarmogoyf would be still good. Um, that means that probably even if you make multiple tokens uh, for the Invasion of New Phyrexia, you still want to attack the Invasion of New Phyrexia to make your tokens better, because you get um, to flip uh, Teferi, and Teferi is a Planeswalker with four loyalty that has you can plus it to draw two cards, and then discard two cards, unless you discard a creature card, in this blue mages, you need to have creatures in your deck to uh, to have a net gain of cards from the Teferi. Uh, or you can minus it to get an emblem, minus two it for to get an emblem. So if it flips, you can instantly get an emblem. And the emblem says, um, knights you control get plus one, plus O, and have ward one. Um, so if you protect Teferi sufficiently, you can minus two minus two twice, and you get um, uh, permanent emblems uh, where every night you control will get plus two plus O, and we'll have ward one, ward one. Uh, so your new Phyrexia, um, invasion of new Phyrexia, white and blue knight creature tokens will be not two twos but four twos. Um, and then uh, three minus three, it has top X creatures you control. Again, it needs creatures. Great aggressive Teferi, I love you already. 
Um, and when you do shuffle target non-land permanent and opponent controls with mana value X or less into its owner's library. Um, so you can kill something uh, uh, or, well, at least temporarily uh, incapacitate until they draw it again. Um, but you need to tap creatures to that. I mean, obviously, the positive thing of that is that um, you can... Um, um, you can you can you can obviously do it post attack because your uh, knight tokens have vigilance, but obviously probably you want to remove it before combat, so you will need to do some actions before uh, before um, you attack, and that will involve tapping creatures. So it's like it's a, it's a tricky ability, but I guess if you remove some big threat, uh, it is going to be worth it. But the most important part is that clearly the design team wanted you to attack this uh, battle, which means only one thing in my head, and that is this is going to be a very blocking uh, format. And I already told you, backup is another mechanic that puts me in that kind of uh, line of thinking. Um, and that means we're going to have long games, stolly things, uh, big bots matter. Um, evasion is going to be absolutely clutch. And if you want to do uh, any kind of, uh, uh, any kind of uh, battle uh, shenanigans, uh, because obviously flyers will be able to go through and, and, and kill the battle. There are some spells that can remove counters. There are some spells that deal damage to battles. These are going to be probably a good way of doing it. And coming back to the specific example of the invasion of New Phyrexia, but probably also many others. Because the format is slow, even if you accumulate some kind of creature advantage and you start doing attacks, trying to trade as many things as possible, um, it's going to be difficult to deal all 20 damage. So probably the way they try to design it, at least, is going to be, yes, you can try attacking their life total, but you will very often fall short of that. So why not, instead of attacking their life total, do yourself a first small quest. First defeat the battle. If you defeat the battle, you get extra advantage. And that extra advantage will push you through the level that was required to actually start attacking the opponent's life. The more battles you win, the more permanent kind of bonuses you will get. And the more permanent bonus you get, the more advantage you get. And there you can finally start slamming face uh, because you're uh, not that worried at that stage because you accrued your uh, value. So I guess that you will have to win some battles to win the war. And and at least, you know, I can't tell you that this is, uh, this is how it's... Um, um, that this is how it's going to play out because uh, we don't we know so few cars that this is sheer speculation but i am pretty sure that this is what the design team was aiming for at least because you don't make a new car type and you don't want and you don't want to have it sit aimlessly on the battlefield as as it is and yes i'm i'm sure that this set is going to play uh, uh very differently for that but okay um I think that these are all the thoughts that I had on the early spoiler of the March of the Machine. And with that, I would like to thank the 17 Lands team who is always providing me with the data. The viral misnomer, Hululu, Grant Wu, ZTM. Um, also, big thanks to Fake Jake Brown, who is helping me release this in the podcast form. And while we're at it, um, SSQ and Mana Junkie, uh, who provide the music for the podcast. Obviously, thanks to all the patrons. Um, uh, I will thank you by putting those slides in my Patreon so you have access to them. You can look through them uh, without listening to my raspy voice. 
Um, and thanks to MTGA Zone for being the sponsor of this podcast that's helping greatly my motivation to churn out things. Uh, and with that, I'll see you next week. <laughs>